You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Dr. Kim Kutch of CarryFree, C-A-R-I-F-R-E-E.com, and a carry, which is, a, I guess, dentist parlance for a, a, a cavity. You know, regular folks probably call them cavities, but uh, for some reason, dentists call them carries, which actually would probably be my first question, but uh, Dr. Kutch, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Rich. It's great to be here with you today. Yeah, why do they call cavities caries? Where does that come from? Well, it's actually a Latin word. Uh, if you think of carry-on, you know, which is rotting, you know, flesh, like on roadkill. So caries is that, you know, basically is a term for rot. So basic, basically it was kind of a Latin description of, of a tooth rot. And, uh, you know, we use Latin a lot in, in medicine and dentistry. And so, you know, it's just something that carried over. But most people don't. You know, dentists talk about dental caries, but most people talk about cavities or just tooth decay, which is, you know, I think easier for people to understand. But that's where the root, the, mm-hmm. the word comes from. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I should have asked. It sounds horrible, like carrion or <laughs> something rotting. <laughs> it's not a particularly attractive description of a cavity, no. But it's actually <laughs> pretty accurate because, you know, the inside of the tooth is made up of a lot of protein and, and essentially these bacteria that get inside of your tooth and create the cavity or actually digest and break down the, and rot the protein that's inside of there. So it's, it's accurate. It's just not, it's not a pleasant thought. That's what I wanted to ask you. So what I know, you know, you wouldn't be into this so deeply if there wasn't more to it. So what do, you know, folks that aren't dentists think happens to cause cavities in their mouth and then what do your run-of-the-mill dentists think cavities are and how to treat them and then i want to go into like what you've observed to be true which may be very different yeah you know i think that's the you know that's the biggest challenge um and for me i mean i've I've been practicing 40 years it's really hard to (laughs) imagine that but um you know I've, i've been in the same practice in my hometown that i grew up in since 1982 and you know over a span so i've been in albany for 37 years um you know over the span of 37 years like i saw you know i see patients that um i'm looking at their grandchildren that are coming in to see me now you know these people have been with me for the entire time and you get 
you get to know them really well. They become family to you, right? So about 20 years yeah, into definitely. this process, you know, and so you, you care for these people. I mean, that's what I do every day, right? I go to work because I, I care about people. And um, after about 20 years of practice, I was like, you know, all the things I was taught in dental school about filling, drilling and filling cavities and stuff. At some point in time, if, if everything that I was taught worked, you know, my patients should stop getting cavities, right? Like if this, all this education knowledge, because I, I, I told them what to do. I told them what I'd been instructed. I shared that with them. I tried to help them. And yet they continue to get cavities. And, you know, it took me about 20 years to get really frustrated with the thought of like, I'm not really helping these people, right? If I can't help get them decay free, what, you know, what's my, what's my goal? What's my role here, right? If I can't do that, what am I doing here? And um, I think the biggest confusion for patients is they go to see their dentist and they have no idea, you know, they walk in and sit down for their checkup and they don't know if they have cavities or not. You know, cavities at, in the early stages are asymptomatic. So, you know, they come in and sit down and go, well, you have any, you know, you have any cavities today? Well, how would they know? They don't even know what causes cavities and they don't know if they have yeah. any or not. And we have this concept that it's a, a matter of neglect, you know, like, well, you didn't take care of your teeth. And I tell you, if it was all about floss and fluoride, you know, I wouldn't have a job. I mean, if that, if it was as simple as that, you know, I'd be out of work. But, but it's, the answer isn't that yeah. simple. It's a really complex disease. And so dentists, I think, again, the majority of our education time is spent on learning how to fix and repair the damages from the disease. And I really, I think the thing that bothered me the most was 20 years into it, I felt like I don't even understand this disease that I spend most of my time treating. Like, I, I really felt oh, like I didn't. Interesting. I had a background in, you know, microbiology. I'd been taught all of, the, you know, these pathways. But I didn't really feel like I really understood because if I really understood the disease, then what I'd been trained should work. And it didn't. So I thought, you know, something's wrong here. And I think your average dentist, we know we're really good at repairing the damage from dental caries or from tooth decay, but on average, we really don't have a great handle on what causes those cavities in the first place. We're, our education is more focused on how to how to how to restore the teeth rather than yeah. you know, how many cavities you have and how am I going to fix them, rather than asking the real basic question, which is where we should really be starting from, which is why do you have cavities, right? Why do you have cavities in the first place? And let's figure that out and then fix that. And, you know, so that was the approach that I got involved about 20 years ago was looking at, okay, so let's figure out why this patient has cavities and let's address and mitigate those risks. And then they should become decay free, you know, at least get on a road toward health. And so that really changed my entire mindset. But it's really, I think, the biggest challenge for us as dentists mm -hmm. is to step away from the restorative model and look at the medical model of like, okay, let's treat this like a, a disease proper and let's figure out what the cause of the disease is and fix that instead. And so, I, you know, that's that's what really motivated me 20 years ago. And, and I think that, you know, the average patient doesn't understand what causes cavities. And, and quite frankly, the average dentist doesn't understand well enough yet, although that's that's changing. You know, it's changing pretty well in the last 20 years. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, like one phenomenon I've experienced, and I know you've seen it, like I'm lucky with teeth. You know, my wife hates it because she, she's had a lot of teeth problems. You know, I brush my teeth every day. I just do it like once a day. If it grosses anyone yep. out, sorry. But I've had one cavity in my life when I was 14. And I didn't even know if there was a cavity. And I'm over 40. And, you know, right. I go to the dentist. But, you know, like they're like, oh, okay, they just clean you and I'm fine. And other people, like 
they're constantly having problems. So there's a vast difference. Where do you think that difference comes from? You know, have you observed it first of all? I'm sure you have. And where did the difference come from? Oh, yeah. You think? yeah. So, you know, there's been a lot of research done on, you know, asking that exact question, like, why does this person not have any cavities? And why does this other person have cavities like every time they go to see the dentist, right? Why is it just a continuing problem for them? And um, probably John Featherstone at UCSF has done the most research on that. Um, And we've identified basic risk factors now that we know that contribute to your risk for getting cavities. And they've been validated in large clinical trials looking at, you know, over 12,000 people. Um, And I've done the same thing on my own, uh, looking at patients clinically and looking at those risk factors and, you know, the incidence of those risk factors in uh, patient population in private practice. And the number one risk factor is dry mouth uh, at this point in time. In the the data that we have, 63% of the patients self-report that they experience a dry mouth at some time of the day or night. So that's, so I've kind of, one of the things I've tried to do in the last 20 years is uh, when I first got involved in this Curry's risk assessment model was it was very complicated. And quite frankly, it was confusing. It was confusing to dentists and hygienists. It was confusing to patients. And so I spent the last 18 years trying to simplify it. And one of the things I've identified in my own practice is I see basically four main risk factors and, and I think expressions of this disease. And if you can just kind of start to look for those risk factors, that kind of like appearance of the disease, you can target immediately what you think the patient's problem is and then target your questions to like ask them about those risk factors. But the number one was, was dry mouth. And I think you're going to you see a lot of information that a lot of advertisements on television with products. And the reason for that is because a lot of people are experiencing that issue. Our saliva output is about two liters per day. But as we age, that slows down. And then if you take medications, uh, the number one side effect of any prescription medication, I mean, almost all prescription medications is dry mouth. It reduces the amount of saliva you have. So we've got, you know, 70% of all Americans across every age demographic. This is 70% of all Americans take at least one prescription drug per day. 50% take two or more and 20% take five or more. Right. So as you get older, your saliva decreases naturally because of your age process. And then you start taking more medications and suddenly you have this really dry mouth. Well, why is that important? Right. Why does that create a risk for tooth decay? I mean, that's an important question to understand. And that work goes back to the late 1980s with uh, Philip Marsh from the UK. And Dr. Marsh, in his research with using a biofilm model, demonstrated that it wasn't the sugar availability that changed the biofilm in the mouth on the teeth, but it was actually the pH. And so saliva is neutral and or the stimulated saliva when you start to eat is actually quite alkaline. And so it's your body's way of protecting your teeth is to bathe them constantly in this um, alkaline environment that's super saturated with the minerals that the teeth are made out of. So, you know, we have these, it's an amazing system, but we have these hyper mineralized structures in our mouth, which we call teeth, which are only exist because they're continuously bathed 20, you know, basically 24 hours, seven days a week in a super saturated solution that's alkaline that protects them. Enamel starts to dissolve, you know, pH of seven is neutral. You have a background in chemistry, you know, at 5.5, enamel starts to dissolve. Well, the bacteria that feed on Jeez. anything you eat that are on your teeth and you have a biofilm on your teeth, 
Um, and we all do. We have biofilms throughout our entire bodies, but we have biofilms on the teeth. And if you have a healthy biofilm, your teeth stay in balance. But every time you eat, the pH in your mouth drops. And some of the bacteria actually function to raise the pH back up, but your, your saliva is the major protective factor for your teeth. So if you reduce the amount right, of saliva so you have quite dramatically, suddenly the protective mechanism is gone. And then the bacteria that produce the acid that like an acidic environment, they take over the biofilm and now you've got a biofilm that's totally dysfunctional. And, you know, you watch the teeth just break down at that point in time. So that that's the number okay, one so, factor. Yeah, so I'm thinking people that drink a lot of coffee and not enough water have heard coffee is acidic. So I would bet that they... Um, they're changing their uh, their pH consistently and keeping it more acidic. People that drink soda, I mean, that's really acidic. When I, I, really, I don't even know what it does to drink a soda in your mouth. I mean, it must be a, a real shock <laughs> to the bacteria there. You know, they, you know, they're they're carbonated with carbonic acid, and so the pH of sodas and coffee is around somewhere around three point five. And you know that enamel is starts to in, dissolve at five point five, right? So you've got 100 times the acidity that it takes to start to dissolve enamel, you know, when you when you drink coffee or tea or wine or anything, pretty much. Water, how you got to be careful with water, however, because I was for years told my patients, you know, if you can't do anything else, you know, just rinse your mouth. After you eat, just rinse your mouth out with water. Well, the problem is half of the bottled waters on the market, about half, have a pH of 4.0. They're about like sodas and they're actually manufactured by the soda companies. And the way that they get um, shelf life stability, they take, you know, the chlorine stuff out of this water. So you have really pure water. The problem is it's not shelf life stable. And so they acidify, you know, for really? stability. And so they have a pH of 4.0. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so all day long. The pH is that low? Yeah, I know. I, it's oh shocking. <laughs> yeah. I, had and no you can't, I mean, you can't taste it, can you? Or are we just used no, to the taste of um, the acidified water? You absolutely can't taste it. So you can go look that up. On, you can Google search that and, and look for, you know, pH of bottled waters and look at different brands and the pHs of them. So that's something that now I tell patients, if you can't do anything else, rinse your mouth out with tap water because tap water should be about 7, 7.15 in most communities, somewhere in that neighborhood. So, you know, that's a safer approach. That's more neutral. But that pH really alters the, the biofilm content and the behavior of the bacteria. Um even what we used to think were the good bacteria even start to produce acid and kind of join in the party at some point in time. So it's really an environmental issue with the biofilm and, and the acid produced. So that medication, I mean, you know, it's, it's not surprising then that 70% of our patients are taking at least one prescription drug every day and 63% of them um, self-reported by mouth. So that's like the number one risk factor in my mind for all the tooth decay that we're seeing today. Number two is diet. And 55% of the patients in my studies self-report, they either eat uh, too many times during the day, they eat too frequently, or they eat too much sugar. And if uh, the American diet, I mean, the average American eats 23 teaspoons of sugar per day. Now, I would, encourage, I would encourage your listeners to go to their kitchen, get out a measuring teaspoon and measure out 23 teaspoons of sugar and look at how much that is because it's shocking. But if you look at how much sugar is in a, oh, yeah. in a can of soda, a 12 ounce can of soda, you look at what, you know, hidden sugars are in so many of our processed foods that, you know, the average American, it's one of the reasons that we, you know, 
we have the diabetes epidemic, you know, obesity, hypertension, heart disease, cancer. I mean, you go back to sugar and, you know, we're, we're off the chart on sugar here in the U.S. And, it, and it's, it, it's shocking. And, and so that's a bit, sugar is a big issue because those bacteria easily break that sugar down the mouth and it produces acid. You know, you produce the acid, it drops the pH. Suddenly, you know, the teeth, you start, they can start to dissolve a hole in the tooth. You don't have enough yeah, saliva to protect yourself. Suddenly, you got a recipe for disaster, right? Uh, but the other uh, couple, couple, couple quick questions in here before we move on. Yeah, yeah. A lot in here. So that tells me if you, um, if you don't take breaks between your eating and you eat very frequently, you're constantly recreating that acidic environment in your mouth. And even with normal saliva, you just don't have enough time for it to sit in the basic state. So you're stressing the bacteria in the mouth by eating too frequently. Yep. Rich, you are right on. Um, the, the, uh-huh. the term we use is, is, you know, the phrase is gulp, don't sip. Like I tell my patients, you want to have a, a soda, have it. Have it with a meal and drink it all at one time. I mean, you don't have to chug it, but, but have it with your meal and get it over with. Where people run into problems is like, They'll sit at work and they'll put creamer or sugar in their coffee and then they'll sip on it like for four hours. And so what you're constantly doing is dropping that pH in the mouth for a four hour period of time. And that, that changes the biofilm. And so it's whether, you know, eating too frequently is, is, is as important as eating too much sugar. And so you take a healthy mouth that has enough saliva and you eat and the pH in your mouth drops and it takes about 15 to 30 minutes for that mouth to recover. And when that happens, as the pH drops, actually nanoparticles of the um, mineral actually come out of the tooth. They dissolve and they get trapped in the biofilm. And then as the pH raises, they go right back in. So you have this equilibrium going on, this dynamic where the, the surface of the enamel is dissolving and remineralizing every time you eat. And in a healthy mouth, you have this you know, equilibrium and this balance. It's when you get out of balance that then you have you know, a net loss of mineral from the enamel and then you start to get into the decay issue so just eating too frequently or sipping too frequently on anything like that um, is a challenge as well so those are the two biggest risk factors um yeah, i got, then, a, I got then, a quick question too um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. that's all right you said so when you're mounting in an acidic environment the enamel is dissolving and then it's moving around the mouth and remineralizing or does it somehow yeah, stay it actually, local to where it dissolves yeah, it actually gets trapped right by the biofilm on the surface of the enamel. And so, it, you know, which is we have this protective layer of protein uh, that precipitates from the saliva on the surface of the teeth. And it and the biofilm grows on that. And it actually just gets trapped right there and it goes right back into the teeth. So it, it just comes out of the surface. It, it's kept right in that area and it goes right back in. Actually, you know, that becomes another thought is if you <laughs> if you eat and then immediately go brush your teeth with like an abrasive toothpaste, any, you know, the whitening toothpaste, which tend to be quite abrasive. And you remove all of that pellicle and, and the protein layer and the biofilm from the surface of the tooth. You're taking away the, the mineral, you know, content with it. And so it's actually, you know, we've always been trained to like, you know, eat and then go brush your teeth. You're actually, if you think about this from a biofilm standpoint, you're better off to brush your teeth first and then go eat, right? So that you're not brushing away that that mineral that dissolves, you know, you're trapping that, you're keeping it. So, um, you know, so I mean, there's just little things that when you start looking at the biofilm model, it's like you start looking at what our habits and what our old belief system is, and it's like, wow, let's change how we behave. 
the, ne the next biggest risk factor is just the biofilm itself. And people either have the wrong bacteria and they, you know, they've had too many acidic exposures, you know, from their diet or from not enough saliva. And, and you get these acid loving, acid producing bacteria that take over the biofilm, or they just have too much biofilm period. You know, like they're not doing an adequate job of brushing and removing the biofilm and, you know, trying well, to keep it. More, um, all right. So a couple more questions here. What, what does mouthwash do to you? What about people that have uh, mouthwash? So or use it. <laughs> you have to be really careful with the mouthwash. They're a lot like bottled water. A lot of them are very acidic, um, and it's like in the pH of 4.0. So it's like, yeah, they'll kill the biofilm, but at the same point in time, uh, and they'll reduce the biofilm load. A lot of them, but a lot of them either <clears throat> are alcohol-based, so you have that as an issue, and/or they're okay. quite acidic. And the reason for the acid is shelf life stability, typically. Um, but again, so you're trying to get rid of these acid loving bacteria by rinsing them with acid. Um, uh, you know, just, uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. The mouthwash, <laughs> if it's killing the, uh, the bacteria in your mouth, I mean, it probably doesn't preferentially kill, or maybe it preferentially kills in the wrong way and the alcohol dries out of your mouth. And I mean, who knows what it yeah. does? I don't know. It sounds pretty bad, actually. It's not preferential. So. Um, you know, and that was one of the things that led me to work on the research that I did and the products I created based on Philip Mars's, you know, work in the 80s was I thought, well, let's let's try using some alkaline products and see what happens. Like if, if his theory is correct, then by helping support the body the way nature does it by raising the pH, um, you know, will that make a difference? And will it help change the biofilm to a healthier behaving biofilm or a healthier content? And it appears to do that. In fact, it appears to do that quite well. Um, you know, so that's where I got involved in that research. Um, okay, a so, couple more so questions the, here. Um, alkaline waters. I've seen those advertised, you know, pH supposedly yep. 8 up to 9. And they do have a different mouthfeel. Are those truly yep. alkaline, and do you feel like they're beneficial? Yep, I think they're alkaline, and I... I, you know, I, I think you're better off, certainly better off using an alkaline water, drinking it. You know, I don't know what effect the alkaline water has on your overall health, right? And the rest of the body, but at least for the teeth, um, having a pH water of uh, 8.0 or 9.0 is certainly more beneficial than having one at 4.0. Mm. Okay. And then so, um, I've been thinking also about mouth breathers versus nose breathers. Do you think that um, mouth breathers expose the mouth cavity to more oxygen so it prefers aerobic versus anaerobic bacteria or or both even uh, presence i don't know it it just tends to patients that are mouth breathers tend to have more problems with dry mouth particularly at night when we sleep our body actually reduces the amount of saliva output otherwise we'd like choke on our saliva while we're trying to sleep you know so your mm. saliva output lay down while you're, while you're asleep and if you're breathing out of your mouth and you have it open yeah you, you dry the mouth out even more so it just, you know, gives a, a, a greater opportunity for the pH to drop. So that's, you know, you just don't have the protection on the teeth at night, you know, from, you know, your alkaline saliva while you're asleep. So that, that becomes an issue as well. Yeah, and then the last... I've, um... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I keep asking oh, any just... questions, but go ahead with the last one. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and then send out the last major risk factor, you know, the last usual suspect is genetics. And there's been a lot of research in the last nine years on looking at different gene sites, how different genes. And, and when you were asking the question, you know, why have I never had a cavity? And, you know, why has my wife maybe had all this tooth again, all these issues her entire life? And so if it's not saliva 
it's not a dietary issue and it's and you're adequately you know taking care of the biofilm on your teeth you know it could well be genetic and there's uh, there's probably 50 genes that have been identified now that appear to play a role in your risk for tooth decay and although that uh, it's interesting because I, I got to spend time with that, who I think is the leading expert in the world Alex Beer um, uh-huh. and talk to him about uh, specifically about what role genetics plays and he said oh we've analyzed all the data and we know exactly what that is and, I, and I've heard ranges anywhere from 30 to 60 percent I mean it's just it's a guess at this point in time because we really right. don't have any data to measure that Alex said, no, we run all the data for tooth decay, it's 9%. So I go, oh, so it's maybe that not tell a- you That doesn't tell you the mechanism or which genes or coding yep. sequences. Yep. It doesn't tell you the method of action. Nope. It doesn't tell you how to stop it. It's, it's crap, you know? I can't, and the, the challenge with genetics is, is you're exactly right. I can't diagnose it accurately. I can't tell you which gene, you know, if you have an issue and it's genetic, I can't even exactly diagnose that for you other than if I ruled everything else out. I'm going to assume that you've probably got a genetic influence, but I don't know which gene is causing that. And I can't change your genome, not yet anyway, right? I can't measure it and I can't change it right at the moment. So it's just something to know that, that you have a genetic risk. So we have to be really careful about, really mindful about not having a lot of acidic episodes in your mouth, making sure you have a really healthy diet, making sure you're not eating too frequently, making sure that, you know, you're not suffering from dry mouth, you know, trying to keep your mouth um, mm. Adequately, adequately wet, you know, during the day, moisturized, and 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 with something that's not acidic when you're trying to do that. So um, that that becomes a challenge. But so you say it's nine percent. Well, okay, so that's not a big influence. But for the person who has that problem, it's a hundred percent. Does right. that make sense? Right. Exactly. Right. So it's well, only nine percent on a population basis. But if you look at an individual, somebody has a genetic problem. It's a it's a percent influence for that person. It might be a hundred percent of the cause of their problem. So, um, you know, so that's a real issue for some people, or at least let's say for nine percent of our patients. And it's hard to identify, and it's and it's hard and it's a challenge. So it's the most important part is just to try and be as mindful and healthy as you can about you know taking care of the biofilm on your teeth. Well, there's also adaptation. All creatures adapt. So what are you doing to the bacteria in your mouth, the bacteria, the microbiome in your mouth? after years of soda or coffee or whatever, you know, what do you, what, how is your body changing epigenetically? And I know this is out of the scope, but just, you know, you say, oh, genome, you know, your genes, what about your epigenome, you know, epigenetic marks? And they're somehow being altered too by this behavior. So please get out of here. You know? The environment plays a huge role, right, with your genes, right? And I don't, I would say that we really don't understand that very well in the big picture, and certainly we don't understand it very well in, in for tooth decay at this point in time, but that's on the horizon here, and we're starting to talk about epigenetics because the environment does influence the expression of those genes. An analogy I like to use with patients is that I think is kind of simple. It's kind of like um, your genetics are the ignition switch in your car, and the environment is either the gas pedal or the brake, right? So it's you know the environment has the influence of either you know accelerating a problem or not. But um, you know we're born with the genes that we have and trying to understand well how does that influence it? And certainly spending a lifetime of drinking soda, eating wrong, and and not taking care you know not brushing, taking care of your bio, biofilm if you're taking a lot of medications, you know that 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 does change the biofilm in your mouth. It changes the content of the bacteria that are there and and, and it changes 
how they behave. More importantly, you know, it changes the pH. So um, yeah, this is a, so I always come back to the end of the, my usual suspects are saliva, diet, uh, the biofilm mm. and genetics. But at the end of the day, it's all about pH. So if you can maintain a healthy pH in your mouth, you're not going to get tooth decay. And it's as simple as that. So it's so a very- Tell me about some of the, um, tell me about some of the phenomena you've seen over the years or experiments you've seen that just either mystified you or surprised you, or you thought were really instructive to you, you know, what kind of work is being done out there? Or what have you seen that you're like, that's crazy. So um, I think, you know, the most, I think, impactful stuff that I've seen is certainly some of the work that we've done working with elevated pH, just trying to raise the pH in the, in the mouth, trying to uh, protect the teeth. And, and I've measured, I did some um, biofilm work research back, you know, like 2005 to 2010, actually uh, taking, you know, biofilm samples from patients and then putting them on alkaline uh, oral healthcare products and then going back and looking at did that impact or change the makeup and content of their biofilm? And it did. It only took like a month, and I saw a significant change in the biofilm. So we know that we can influence and drive that. We did a study in Townsville, Australia, in uh, that same period of time on um, school children, and they were all high risk. They were in a real poverty area, and they were all high risk for tooth decay. They were averaging two and a half new cavities per child per year, and we put them on an alkaline rinse. And that's all they did. That's the only uh, variable in the study. We just had them rinse at school for 30 seconds once a day. And we reduced, wow. their, decay, we reduced their decay rate by 73%. And wow. I, that's off the charts in terms of results. So that's something that I, I think it's really important that um, to understand that we can change the, the content and makeup of the biofilm. You know, it, like I said, if it was all just floss and fluoride, like I was taught in dental school, um, we wouldn't have a tooth decay problem today if, you know, if, if people would, you know, because we've got adequate exposure to fluoride it's in the water, it's in every product, you know, oral healthcare product practically that you, you can put your hands on. Um, here's a, here's a question for you. So yeah. you could only do one of two things. If you could either brush your teeth twice a day or you couldn't brush your teeth at all, but you would, you know, swish around an alkaline solution in your mouth twice a day for 30 seconds, which would you take and which would have more of an impact? So I would brush my teeth twice a day with an alkaline gel. How but if you can only do one of the two, which one do you think is more impactful? Oh, I think, I think actually, uh, you know, that's a really good question, Rich, and I, and I haven't really studied that per se, so I couldn't really give you an answer. But if me personally, I would brush twice a day. But I'd want to use an alkaline product, which is what I do. Yeah, and, and, and a toothpaste, let me guess, they're probably acidic, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's hard. It's, it, yeah, I know. I was shocked. I, I had no idea that oral healthcare products were acidic back in 2001 when I started studying this. Um, I, I was shocked at how acidic you know, most of them are. Starting, you're starting to see some products that are, you know, getting to neutral or, um, you know, certainly elevating the pH. And this will become more of an, an issue. And, and one of the greatest challenges we had was <clears throat> if you create a product um, and you acidify it, you take it down to a pH of 4, Nothing wants to grow in it. Like it, you can put it on the mm. shelf for two years and nothing wants to grow in it. You raise it to a pH of eight and everything wants to grow in it. And then the other challenge you've got is that all of the preservatives that we typically use for all of our food, you know, healthcare products or whatever, um, are most active in, a, in an uh, acidic environment. So like you get above pH of eight or so and they don't work anyway. And I mean, they, they're inactivated. Mm. So, like 
Uh, the greatest challenge, it took us about four years to figure out how to stabilize on the shelf um, any product like a rinse or a gel that was alkaline. Like most of the products we created have a pH of nine or higher. Um, so that that was like the biggest challenge. And that, that was, I, I think for me, was a surprise. Um, not understanding, you know, how acidic a lot of products are. And I mean, I well, think what, I didn't well, what happens if you make them so basic that they do have a pH of nine, 9.5? Does it have the same you know, antimicrobial or shelf stabilizing effect or no? Uh, not, not really. And so, although we have figured, we have figured out and some of that's proprietary, <laughs> we have figured out how, you know, the shelf life stability, but that was a big issue. But given the chance, okay. so I understand how why bottled water is acidified. I understand why products are, well, a lot of our processed foods that are canned <laughs> are acidified. Um, I mean, I get, I get that now, but I didn't understand that 20 years ago. Well, what about a product that has an outer coating that is acidic, and even if it goes in the mouth, the coating is quickly uh, dissolved, and then the rest of it is basic, and the bolus of it is big enough or thick enough that, you know, it, it, yeah, it still I, helps change the pH back. Yeah, I, you know, that's a that's an interesting thought, and certainly it sounds like it would work. As long as you're just okay. right, you know, it's okay to have acidic episodes, because you can't avoid that, because every time you eat, that happens. And if you don't eat, you die. But... Right. You gotta have you gotta have a, a healthy environment where your mouth and your teeth can recover and remineralize. And you know that takes, like I said, it takes 15 to 30 minutes in a healthy mouth. And somebody that doesn't have enough um, saliva, that could take an hour or longer. So if you look at, I, th I think one of the other things that it's pretty typical with the change in our American diet, we we tend to graze more now. People tend to eat all day long in small, small amounts rather than, you know, sit down at, at defined meals. Like, you know, when I was a child growing up <clears throat> in the fifties and sixties, you know, you had breakfast, you had lunch and you had dinner. And right. that was pretty much it. You, if you were lucky, you got a snack in the middle of the afternoon. And that is a really <laughs> healthy way to eat. Um, it's healthier than eating, you know, just all day long, nibbling, you know, grazing just slowly all day long. Cause what you're doing is you're just, Dropping the pH, you know, you have this prolonged periods of low pH in the mouth, and and that's that's a disaster. So, so yeah, I mean, th there should be like a after dinner or after meal uh, alkalizer, you know, uh, dessert. <clears throat> it won't be a, it won't be a dessert, but it would act like a, a dessert for your mouth, and it would, you know, stem the uh, the low pH yeah, environment, actually, you know, quickly yeah, after eating. So, yeah, actually, one of the products I developed is a spray. Um, a mouth spray and it's has a pH of 8.0 and you know it's minty and sweet and it, it raises the pH and it helps boost the pH back in your mouth um, oh really so yeah so and it's, it, I, you know, I, it's so it's called it's called boost spray um, and it's from carry free it's actually now has a title of CTX2 um, but it's just a spray you know oral spray and um, I have a lot of patients use it for dry mouth like they'll take it and use it in the middle of the night like if they're a mouth breather they'll have a, a little um spray bottle on their nightstand and if they wake up they'll take a couple of squirts i have two really good friends right now going through um who, who are dentists going through oral cancer treatment and um right. they're they're using it because they've lost their saliva because of radiation and yeah. you know it's amazing how much it's helping them so yeah hmm. um anyway it's a very complex right. disease. It's, you know, tooth decay is the number one disease in the world. Uh, of all the diseases that the World Health Organization tracks, dental caries is number one. Um, 
Well, we haven't we haven't talked about the the effects of the disease yet. That's that's the big piece I want to ask you about now. So, so what I heard is, oh yeah, yeah, tooth decay and cavities are like a low grade. I mean, you know, you've heard stories of like uh, I don't know a a deep enough abscess killing someone because it goes into their bloodstream, but just just having um, tooth decay. What does that do? Is that like a low-grade infection for your body, or what are the health effects of it? If it's a disease, what does it do? You know, we're uh, let me let me backtrack just a second, Rich, on that because this is a really important topic, and I would say we're kind of just at the early stages of that, looking at those bacteria from tooth decay. But I'll, I'll give you some statistics and studies that have been done so far. But if we can backtrack for just a second, about 20 years ago, we started identifying that the bacteria that cause gum disease which is, you know, the other, you know, major disease we treat in the mouth. Um, those bacteria now are being associated with heart attacks and strokes. Um, one of the bacteria last week, I saw a report, um, Fusobacterium nucleatum is now associated with a more aggressive or, or accelerating colon cancer. So we're starting to see these oral bacteria in the, in the other parts of the body do really bad things as well there. Um, Porphyrmonas gingivalis, which is one of the um, probably the most pathogenic bacteria that play a role in gum disease, uh, now we know actually plays a role in, in heart attacks and strokes. So you start looking at bacteria, and that so that information has been around, and that science is developing. Uh, so the oral systemic connection between the bacteria in the mouth and you know other diseases in the body are starting to be more explored and understood. When it comes to dental caries. The, the number one pathogen for years has been this bacteria called strep mutans. And we are, when I was in school, we were taught that was the cause of the disease, man. You have strep mutans in your mouth and that causes cavities. It's like a kind of a classic infection. And now we know that that's a really simple model that is not even close to the truth. And I, I see that that say, yeah, it's definitely an important player in the disease. And I see other studies that question if it, if it, you know, what role it plays at all. 40%, let me give you this statistic, 40% of the people in the United States that have severe tooth decay have zero mutant strep in their mouth. So it's like, okay, so it might play a role in 60%, but in these other 40%, it's not even there. So they've got tooth decay yeah. in, in spite of that bacteria. So, but one of the things that's been studied because it was such a well, mm-hmm. I, I think, well-considered pathogen for tooth decay you know, they studied and found it growing on um, heart valves and coronary arteries in high numbers. And when it's found on the mouth, it's found on the plaque and the arteries and the and the heart valves. It's the number one bacteria found there. Um, we don't know what role it plays, but I always say, you know, that's if there's smoke, there's fire, right? That's been kind of my experience in life. If, if the number one bacteria found in a thrombus when somebody has a heart attack. The number one bacteria found in the clot in the blood vessel is strep viridans. Strep viridans really? is an, an, yeah, and that's an anaerobe that is found. We associate that with abscesses, like an abscess tooth when you have a root canal. So like, mm-hmm. that's like the number one pathogen there. Um, and so then to find that, it's like that's the number one bacteria that's found in the clot in these, you know, patients. It's like, that, see, okay, maybe it's just a coincidence, right? We don't have a lot of data and a lot of studies yet, but you, you got to look at that data and go, okay, I don't think it's a coincidence. Things like that in my mind don't represent coincidence. I don't understand what role it plays, right, right. But, uh, but I wouldn't assume it's coincidence. We have well established at this point in time that the strep mutans bacteria 
that have a CNM gene, they have a specific gene, they actually can penetrate the arterial cell wall, and we know they're responsible and play a significant role now in microbleeds in the brain and strokes. And so, you know, so the next question is, and it hasn't been studied, actually, I was just reading a paper uh, yesterday, it hasn't been studied yet. They've looked at the bacteria and the incidence of microbleeds and strokes, but the question, they didn't back up and go, okay, well, so did these people have high decay, you know, high tooth decay rates? Like they didn't correlate the stroke and the microbleed in the brain to, they correlated to the bacteria, but they didn't correlate the bacteria back to the mouth to see if, you know, they had a high decay rate. So we can't really say, okay, well, if you have a lot of tooth decay, that puts you at risk for microbleeds in the brain and a stroke. Um, we can't say that. If you have high levels of strep mutans, um, we know that plays, you know, plays a role in the brain. And then there was a study that was published, I think it was last month, that strep mutans also were found and um, at infected le infective levels uh, in patients that had, in biopsies on patients that had um, dementia and Alzheimer's. So it's kind of like, you know, that and, and Porphyrmonas gingivalis as well. So you start looking at these oral bacteria and it's like, if you don't have a healthy mouth, I don't think you can have a healthy body if you, if you don't have a healthy mouth, right? Well, here's, you here's something that I was thinking as you were talking. Um, so the mouth, you know, we take in all kinds of things to the mouth. And I mean, the, the outside world really, a lot, of, a lot of the outside world first comes into contact with us through the mouth. So if your yep. mouth is compromised, if there's a, um, you know, a channel through the enamel that goes right to the, you know, that, that allows stuff to get to the bloodstream. And, yep. you know, let's say you eat something acidic. Now the mouth is acidified. Now something comes into the mouth that's just, I'll just put a label bad for you. And it has a direct right. channel to the bloodstream. Perhaps that's why if you reach a certain tipping point with the mouth and you have enough of these channels or entryways that, you know, you're much more prone to sickness or other problems. I don't know. It's just my guess. But. Uh, you, know, you know, and it's just logical, Rich, right? And then if you've got yeah. other cofactors, like you've got diabetes or, you you know, or you have a BC or hypertension, you have high blood pressure and, you know, you're just putting yourself at greater, if you don't have a healthy mouth, I think you're putting yourself just at greater risk, you know, as a cofactor for those other diseases. And, and like I'd say, I can't, we don't have a lot of causative studies yet, but I would I would say we've got an, enough grow. It's a growing body of evidence that certainly should raise the alarms for us all to be thinking about it. What about um, oh. diabetes? Have we seen the, or has, has science seen that, um, you know, having um, just gingivitis or just, you know, general uh, tooth decay correlates with diabetes or inflammation or other kinds of conditions? Uh, you know, there's, there's conflicting research out there on that, but I would say that mm. it's a, a certainly, if you, we know that if you have diabetes, it increases that, that certainly is a cofactor and a, and a co-risk for gum disease. So people that have diabetes, okay. um, it puts them at greater risk for gum disease. And if they have diabetes, it, it tends to be more, you know, gum disease tends to be more pronounced or harder to, to battle in those patients as well. So, um, you know, there's a lot of research that needs to be done yet on, on that topic, Rich. And I would say we're just kind of at the, at the start end of that entire field, but it's fascinating. And there's, there's a lot of kind of, <laughs> like I would say, I would say alarming data that we've seen so far, right? I mean, it should be causing alarm. And I talk to my patients now, you know, particularly patients that have gum disease. I talk to them about, you know, 
the role these bacteria play. We need to be treating this like an infection and we need to be thinking not just about we're saving your gums and your teeth, but we need to be thinking about what this is doing to your arteries and your brain and, you know, the rest of your body. So that's the All conversation. Right, last, last question here. Yep. Tooth whitening. Yep. I should, I got two more. Tooth whitening and braces. What do you think okay. those two things do to your mouth? Um, tooth whitening, I think if you're just using one of the gels that are, you know, either commercial or like, say, the, the strips or the gels or the trays, something like that, it appears to be pretty safe. Um, I mean, I haven't really seen a, a lot of a, a lot of those tend to be alkaline as well. So from a from that standpoint, they you know they're they're going to help the uh, help us you know, in terms of the biofilm and the enamel. Um, the whitening toothpaste tend to be quite abrasive, and so I kind of encourage my patients to if they use them, use them in a very limited you know once a week or something like that. Um, but you know that again, that varies by brand. But that's something that they could look up and you know investigate what the abrasivity is of of a particular toothpaste if they want to use it. So I would say you know the whitening gels and the strips and the trays and all that appear to be pretty safe. Um, I, I would kind of caution people in terms of using whitening formulated toothpaste just on the you know to check the, the abrasivity. Um, on braces. Um, I don't know. You know, one of the challenges that we have, particularly if you've got uh, brackets and wires, you know, bonded to the teeth, the biggest challenge we have for kids that typically it's on kids, teenagers, and teens don't tend to be, um, a lot of them don't tend to have really great hygiene to begin with, you know, in terms of brushing right. and flossing. And when you put brackets on the teeth, it collects a lot more biofilm growth. And so that's the biggest challenge for us is trying to help them keep their teeth clean on a daily basis. And it's I mean, it's a challenge. I had braces. Um, and it's a challenge to keep your teeth clean when you got all that stuff on your teeth. Um, sure, yeah. So that's the biggest issue. And, we, and the biggest challenge, I think, in, in orthodontics today, you know, is those teeth start to demineralize and they get kind of a chalky white area. It kind of it develops around the brackets. And so they, you know, they end up with these squares on their teeth, which are quite, you know, can be quite disfiguring, you know, from an aesthetic standpoint after the braces come off. That's one of the bigger challenges that orthodontists face uh, dealing with younger people. Well, you know, people of any age, but but typically, you know, adolescents. Uh, the trays, you know, they make the, the clear tray kind of systems to move teeth. Um, I use those a lot in my own practice. They work really well. You just, again, have to be really careful of the biofilm builds up, you know, a lot inside of those trays. So just to keep them clean, you know, when you're using them. But, that, you know, the clear tray system, the Invisalign type, you know, orthodontics uh for for minor tooth movement not major cases typically but for you know your moderate to easy you know simple orthodontic cases those work extremely well so okay that's yeah anyway so i don't think that i don't think that it changes anything really you know it, it improves your bite so it reduces hopefully reduces the wear on your teeth over your lifetime so it actually is helpful so all yeah. right. Well, we're good. We, you know, I've, I think I've questioned you to death, but uh, it's been a great call. I, I don't care who says it's nerdy. I think this is so fascinating. This stuff. I, I you know, I just, I'm really into it. So, um, I, I reach out. Just understanding, trying to understand the biofilm and and this disease and all the risk factors associated with it, and then then starting to look at beyond the mouth. You know, what is this disease having? You know, what kind of impact or effect might it be having in the rest of the body? Uh, it's fascinating to me. I, I, you know, I've certainly enjoyed studying it. And, and the, I think the most grateful thing for me is just being able to, I've helped so many patients in the last 20 years become decay free 
because I asked the question why. You know, yeah, I just you know, so, so that's what are, um, what are some resources for listeners? Because you know, not everyone you can't be everyone's dentist and right, some people exactly. are local, some not, and some people may go to their own dentist and they may want to say to their dentist, Yeah, yeah. Hey, oh, check out Carry Free. What's your recommendation yeah. here? So, you know, the easiest thing I could do is to go to the Carry Free website. There's a lot of resources on there. There's a lot of videos on YouTube, um, you know, about Carry's risk assessment. Uh, but they could, we've got a huge resource on our website, um, carryfree.com, C-A-R-I-F-R-E-E.com. And they could go there and look at um, all the videos and all the research and data, and they could call the company if they have questions. We have, you know, people call the company direct all the time. And I've got uh, four four individuals there that train offices, you know, dentists and hygienists. And I'm out lecturing. I speak at about eight or ten, you know, major dental meetings per year. So if they're a professional, they I'd, I'd welcome them to come to one of my 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 lectures, and I'd try and help them however I can. I'd like to see this right, disease. I'd like to see this disease uh, become a piece of history. <laughs> so anyway. Okay. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate you coming on the yeah. podcast. It's been a really great call. Yeah. Oh, it's great. It was great talking to you, Rich. So have a, have a great day. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.